0: Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio.
1: On August 28th, 2013, around 2.30 in the afternoon, the late Representative John Lewis spoke at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. He was a titan of the Civil Rights Movement, and a stalwart figure in our continuing battles for freedom, equality, and human rights. At the 1963 March on Washington, Lewis was the youngest person to speak. He urged the 300,000 people in attendance to, quote, stay in the streets of every city, every village, and hamlet of this nation, until true freedom comes. Fifty years later, as the last living speaker from the March on Washington, John Lewis invited Americans to walk in his shoes.
0: This moment in our history has been a long time coming, but a change has come. We have come a great distance in this country, but we still have a great distance to go before we fulfill the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. Sometimes I hear people saying nothing has changed. But for someone to grow up the way I grew up in the cotton fields of Alabama, to not be serving in the United States Congress, makes me want to tell them, come and walk in my shoes.
1: Representative Lewis's words ring true. We have come a long way as a country, but we still have a great distance to go. In episode one, we explored how the Civil War and Reconstruction shaped American politics. The battle to end slavery and to transform the slave into a citizen was a bitter one. In episode two, we examined the birth of Jim Crow. As powerful new strategies emerged to keep black people in their place and to deny them the vote, we saw black people turning inward to build communities and institutions that would ensure their survival and enable them to flourish. The children who'd memorized Lift Every Voice and Sing in schoolhouses throughout the South during the height of Jim Crow terror, stood poised to lead a social movement in defense of their rights. All grown up now, by mid-century, they had become the generation on the front lines of social revolution in this country. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, the struggle between progress and betrayal has defined this nation. All too often, we take one step forward only to take two steps backward. This isn't a simple story about the progress towards a more perfect union, it feels more like tragedy, with a chorus of voices crying in the wilderness for a new America. In some ways, the battle over our national story and the place of race in it plays out in that back and forth, continuously rearing its ugly head as we struggle with our national sins. The typical story of the civil rights movement often highlights a handful of charismatic leaders facing down the evil of Southern races. It foregrounds spectacular moments of civil disobedience and conveys a tidy story about the triumph of good over evil. It is the stuff of melodrama. But life is messier than such tales. There's more to the story. The more we examine the footnotes and marginalia in our accepted story of the Civil Rights Movement, the harder it becomes to celebrate it as a neat and natural progression of American values. Join me to uncover the beginnings, perhaps of a new story. I'm Dr. Eddie S. Glaude Jr., and this is History Is Us, Chapter 3, The Second Reconstruction.
2: Those protests, those thousands and millions of people in the street, have changed what we're talking about, worried about, thinking about. There is a fight over the definition of what America
3: is, and Black folks are always at the center of making America live up to its stated ideals.
1: Today's episode takes us to the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. For many, the civil rights movement conjures up scenes of protests and larger-than-life figures like Dr. King, John Lewis, and Fannie Lou Hamer. It is a moment memorialized in museums, films, and even children's books. There's a standard story about the period that dominates our public memory.
0: For refusing to give up her seat to a white man, she was arrested and fined, and the Negro people of Montgomery have refused to ride the buses ever since.
1: Then a few popular images of public protest, sit ins, and marches like the March on Washington in 1963. And the Selma March in 1965. The
0: long awaited, long delayed Freedom March to Montgomery begins,
1: ending with the historic Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
0: Today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield
1: this tale charts a triumphant march towards a more perfect union but historians urge us to look more closely some have referred to the civil rights movement as the second reconstruction because in many ways the movement sought to fulfill the broken promises of the first During the 60s, we witnessed massive legal, social, and civil transformation in American society, similar to what took place after the Civil War. Ordinary people took to the streets and altered the course of American history. Jim Crow was no more. Today, we find ourselves embroiled in debate about the role and place of social movements in the United States. And we do so as we face the question once again, who will we be as a nation? All too often, the story of the Black Freedom Movement has been reduced and warped in ways that affirm our inherent goodness as a nation, often altering the usefulness of that story as a historical model. We focus on heroic individuals like Dr. King or dramatic moments like the March on Washington only to obscure the Herculean efforts and sacrifices of ordinary folk. Misconceptions of the period abound, and they prevent us from harnessing the lessons of the civil rights movement to effectively face the problems of our present moment.
3: The standard narrative is in some ways simple answers to complex questions. It really doesn't embrace the ambiguity of the period. So it makes it seem like it's a linear march to progress. And it also makes it seem like that it was a march to progress led by a few individuals, rather than recognizing that this really was a people's movement on so many levels.
1: This is Lonnie Bunch III, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institute. He's the first African-American and first historian to serve as head of the world's largest museum, education, and research complex. He was the founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture.
3: One of the most important things is to understand that progress, that freedom is fragile. And that as far as you could make an argument that Reconstruction really was a revolution, it was a revolution that was murdered. And so I think one of the lessons is that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance and that you're going to have this kind of struggle back and forth, we don't, as Americans, understand the complexity. The violence that was there is really at the heart of trying to understand why this was so revolutionary. And as you know, Americans do not want to embrace their violent past.
1: But the sooner we confront our past, we can begin the work of building a genuinely multiracial democracy. Let's start by looking at Birmingham, Alabama in the 20th century. It was a manufacturing hub for iron and steel. The segregated city filled with black workers was also an important battleground for the types of civil disobedience that characterized the civil rights movement. By the 1960s, the perfect storm of historical factors set the stage for a massive racial reckoning in the United States. The aftermath of World War II, the ongoing migration of African Americans out of the South, and the proliferation of independent states as colonialism collapsed during the Cold War period exposed U.S. racism for what it was. Alabama Governor George Wallace notoriously defended segregation, proclaiming in his infamous 1963 speech,
0: And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. <laughs>
1: In 1963, a boycott led by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, and the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, the ACMHR, thrust Birmingham into the national spotlight. Nonviolent protests and boycotts inaugurated what came to be known as the Birmingham Campaign. Ministers belonging to both organizing groups penned a letter on behalf of the black community of Alabama. They wrote, quote, The patience of an oppressed people cannot endure forever. This letter, known as the Birmingham Manifesto, began a week-long desegregation campaign in early April of 1963. Sit-ins, marches, mass meetings, and boycotts filled the days. But when the city drew up a court injunction against the protests, demonstrators had a choice. Cease and desist? Or risk everything to finally end this nightmare? They decided to risk everything and resolved to disobey the court order.
0: In May of 1963, protest against segregation in Alabama brought the issue of racial conflict to a head.
1: Martin Luther King Jr., appalled by the, quote, unjust, undemocratic, and unconstitutional misuse of the legal process, knew that he would likely be arrested. He chose to make a faith act, On April 12th, 1963, just two days after the court order to block additional demonstrations, Martin Luther King Jr. was thrown in jail.
0: The activities which have taken place in Birmingham over the last few days, to my mind, marked the nonviolent movement coming of age. This is the first time in the history of our struggle that we have been able, literally, to fill the jails. And in a real sense, this is the fulfillment of a dream, For I've always felt that uh, if we could fill the jails and our witness for freedom, it would be a magnificent expression of the determination of the Negro. And a marvelous
1: way. He was held captive in solitary confinement, where he penned an open letter, which today is very well known as the letter from Birmingham Jail. He wrote the letter in the margins of the Birmingham News next to a statement from eight white clergymen condemning the protests.
0: There can be no gain saying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States.
1: Violence engulfed the city.
0: Dynamite exploded on a Sunday morning, killed four little girls in Sunday school, injured 20 other Negroes.
1: On September 15th, 1963, just before the 11 a.m. service at Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, Klan members detonated a massive bomb on the east wall of the church. More than 200 people, including children, were inside the building. The church collapsed. It was the oldest black church in Birmingham, Alabama, and a popular meeting place for civil rights leaders.
0: Then they began pulling the bodies out of the rubble. There were four in all, little girls between 11 and 14 years old. One of them had been decapitated by the force of the blast, which the police think was caused by 15 sticks of dynamite. 22 others were injured. Most of them, like the four dead girls, had been in the Sunday school, near where the bomb exploded.
1: Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair did not survive. This was the third bombing in Birmingham that took place in the span of just 11 days, immediately following a federal court order for integration of Alabama schools. Birmingham had earned its tragic nickname, Bombingham.
0: From all over the cities, Negro who had heard the news began to gather at the church. The church itself was devastated. Every window but one was broken. Pieces of masonry weighing 20 pounds were ripped from the facade and thrown across the street. Inside a
1: whole... The bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church gripped the nation. It drew national attention to the ongoing struggle for civil rights. Marches and protests erupted in its aftermath the grieving black community in Birmingham and surrounding cities rushed to the site of the bombing to bear witness to the devastation. Here's Secretary of the Smithsonian Lonnie Bunch again. What I'm
3: struck by is that the sense is that you had this horrible tragedy, but then they built on that tragedy and they got to a place where Birmingham was changed, America was changed. The reality was that very little was changed. That what you have is the best example of the explicit fight over the definition of who has the rights, who is. The, but in essence, as I see the Birmingham people look at it as a success because, you know, it got all that visibility. But ultimately, when the cameras left, Birmingham was still Birmingham.
1: In the hours after the bombing, When black folks rushed to the church to face the nightmare of life in the United States and especially in the South, Governor Wallace deployed police and state troopers. Protests turned violent, and two black men were killed. Black people had to face this struggle time and time again. They fought for one another in every way they could. When the dust and rubble settled, they routinely confronted the pain of broken faith and broken promises. They picked up the pieces, again and again, despite it all. And they did it with great courage. Courage that's even difficult for people like us to understand. Some of the brave ones were just kids. I think what's so
3: important to me is watching the children get involved. They had a courage that their parents didn't have, because they had a hope for a different Birmingham. And so for me, I think being able to even talk about that intergenerational difference, talk about the debates around, and talk about really the violence that left more dead than just about in any other march. What really helped me, candidly, was walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Until I walked across that bridge, I didn't understand it.
1: In one afternoon, so much of our turbulent history, the stain of slavery, and anguish of civil war, the yoke of segregation
0: and tyranny of Jim Crow, the death of four little girls in Birmingham, and the dream of a Baptist preacher. All that history met on this bridge.
1: The Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama is a historic landmark named for a former Confederate Army Brigadier General, a U.S. Senator and leader of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. The bridge traverses the Alabama River. On March 7, 1965, a 25-year-old John Lewis led over 600 marches over the bridge.
0: We're marching today to dramatize to the nation, dramatize to the world, that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens of Alabama, but particularly here in the Black area, denied the right to vote. We intend to march to Montgomery to present certain grievances to Governor Joy C. Wallace.
1: The large group was mixed, high school, aged children, and adults alike, joined the protest. They were met with brutal force. Using horses, dogs, billy clubs, and tear gas, state troopers and police officers terrorized the crowd of peaceful demonstrators marching for the right to vote. Blood flowed along the paved bridge. Black people were being beaten nearly to death. You could hear the bell The cameras were rolling. Americans across the country saw the gruesome photos and video footage. The images stunned the nation. The incident came to be known as bloody Sunlight.
3: I understood the violence, I understood what they hoped to achieve, but until I walked to the top of that bridge and realized I couldn't see anything till I got to the top, and then when I looked down and said, how did they have the courage to keep walking when they had all of that in front of them? To me, that was a moment where I said, my God, there is a courage that I'm not sure I have, but I'm so grateful that other people had it.
1: The figure of the charismatic Black male leader dominates the standard story of the civil rights movement. To be sure, clergymen, politicians, and veterans were certainly pillars of the community. But ordinary Black people, from all walks of life, truly made the movement work. What most storytellers miss is that it was a true people's movement. Grassroots efforts at the local and state level influenced changes in federal policy. Common folk, sharecroppers, domestic workers, Pullman porters, factory hands, and, and school teachers all mustered the courage and strength to fight.
2: I think today people still are looking for the Marcus, the Malcolm, or the Martin. And of course, the catalyst for historical change and freedom making. Has been ordinary people organizing at the grassroots level as voters, as protesters, as disruptors, as rebel insurgents, etc., and creating a climate in which more highly visible leaders and elected officials had to respond.
1: This is Barbara Ramsby, the John D. MacArthur Chair and Distinguished Professor in the Departments of Black Studies, Gender and Women's Studies, and History at the University of Illinois Chicago. Professor Ramsby is the author of two award-winning books, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision, and Eslanda, The Large and Unconventional Life of Mrs. Paul Robeson.
2: The central mainstream narrative is one of this steady linear progress for African-Americans, you know, from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King to the White House. There is that pattern. That is the ebb and flow of struggle. And we saw it after Reconstruction and what Du Bois called that brief moment of multiracial democracy. And I think the other thing about the mid-20th century movement and skewed views of it today and how it affects us today, this idea that we moved from protest to politics, that somehow protest is passe and won't get us anywhere. And I think that's absolutely not true. And I think the Movement for Black Lives, the upsurge in the protest movements of the last seven years has shown us that, you know, we have not arrived and nor do I think of freedom-making in that way. The narrative about how change happened, what is our theory of change? For me, it is really the larger container of movement building that is the most important. Those protests, those thousands and millions of people in the street have changed what we're talking about, worried about, thinking about, and people in power are worried and thinking. And some of their responses are pretty darn scary. We know that there was Intense struggle and sometimes physical struggle in the course of that movement that many of the young people in SNCC who participated in organizing in Mississippi and other places in the South.
1: SNCC stands for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This was the organization that John Lewis belonged to. The group was founded in 1960 at Shaw University in North Carolina after sit-in protests at segregated lunch counters spread throughout the South. Students, young people, became critical actors in the battle for civil rights. Importantly, SNCC championed a style of protest that continues to inspire activists today. Not one person at the head of a march or action, but a democratic approach to struggle that assumed what Miss Ella Baker, the towering figure behind so much of the black freedom struggle of the 20th century, insisted, that we are the leaders we have been looking for.
0: It takes organization. It takes dedication. It takes the willingness to stand by and do what has to be done when it has to be done.
1: People power fueled the movement. Other grassroots organizations like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, And the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, also contributed to the swell of protests throughout the country. All hands were on deck, and at every turn, communities were the driving force of the movement.
0: That they, as well as you and I, cannot be free in America or anywhere else where there is capitalism and imperialism until 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 we can get people to recognize that they themselves have to make the struggle and have to make the fight for freedom every day in the year, every year, until they win it. Thank you.
1: Everyday people provided the labor and the numbers to make massive demonstrations possible. Ordinary people struck the blow for freedom. The standard story often leaves aside this aspect of the movement. We don't really talk
3: about the tensions, the fundamental tensions in SNCC and other organizations between black and white participants. And we rarely, rarely talk about the depth of the violence. We don't understand the fact that Martin Luther King wasn't embraced by so many people in the Black community contrary to the sort of myths that we like to have.
1: Not everyone was enthusiastic about Martin Luther King Jr. during the movement. Contrary to popular belief, towards the end of the 1960s, his political stance on issues like economic inequality, labor policy, and the Vietnam War drew the ire of many. He had begun to voice a more radical politics, about racial justice and economic fairness. He called for a revolution in values, a fundamental turn away from materialism, militarism, and racism. By the time of his death, Dr. King found himself caught between the rage of a white public no longer willing to hear his prophetic message and the impatience of militant young black men and women who now shouted black power. This part of King's story and the story of the movement has become a footnote of sorts, an appendage to our standard narrative, or the moment, a moment of decline, when everything fell apart. But why? Frankly, it's easier to imagine Dr. King as our friend Martin, a one-dimensional figure with a narrow focus on using nonviolent protest to expand voting rights, and to push for desegregation. This King affirms our national story, and such a depiction does not threaten our nation's identity. In fact, it helps secure our faith in the America that is always on the road to a more perfect union. When we read Dr. King in this way, when we hide the tensions and conflicts within the movement, it's much easier to cast that period as a triumphant story and that story helps secure the myth of our innocence even in the face of our failures
3: it's a battle both an external and an internal battle i mean i think that in some ways it's people feel like you really can't discuss a lot of the internal debates within the community within the movement because that seems to be undervaluing ultimately what they accomplish but i would argue It is those actual fights and debates within the movement that are really transformative, that are really, that tell us about different notions of what America could be. But it also tells me that that energy that came from that, those debates within SNCC, the sort of trying to figure out, all right, how do you go against Martin Luther King without going against Martin Luther King? So the public doesn't come after you. To me, all of that is really so rich and we don't get at that complexity at all.
1: So what do we do with these fables in our history? Well, for starters, we have to tell a different story, a better story. We have to educate ourselves about the nuances and complexities of the past. And our national institutions like schools and research institutions, libraries, parks, they all play a role in this rewriting. Museums do too. The National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, DC is the nation's largest and most comprehensive cultural destination, devoted exclusively to exploring, documenting, and showcasing the African-American story and its impact on U.S. and world history. Put differently, the museum tells an American story, one that we all need to hear. Secretary Bunch curated the story of the civil rights movement in the museum, and he explains how. The key for me was how do I reduce it the human scale? How
3: do I then take away all of the sort of fluff and say, let us look at the core. I don't really begin with Brown versus Board. In many ways, I began with Emmett Till. And the notion that violence, but also the strength of a woman who refused to say at the worst moment of her life, I'm going to sort of close down. Rather, I'm going to keep that coffin open so they see what they did to my son and how that reinvigorated so much of the civil rights movement. So for me, it was really humanizing it and really trying to make sure I explored questions of gender, that I wanted people to understand that Rosa Parks was involved in anti-rape activity in the 1940s, not just sort of, you know, sitting at the back of the bus. So that in essence, the goal was humanize it, bring women forward and to really basically use it to create a new generation of activists. To say that here are people who risked it all to change a country, and that means it is incumbent upon everybody who walked through this museum, whether you're 6 or 60, to continue that struggle. So it really was an activist
1: sense that that struggle has to be committed to and maintained. So with an attentive eye toward the historical actors in the margins... Secretary Bunch helped reshape our understanding of the movement. And visitors to the museum can get a sense of the depth of complexity of our national journey by literally walking through the museum and seeing how the exhibits are organized. Even the way the history
3: galleries are, I wanted you to go up and back. I didn't want you to think it was just straight ahead. That I wanted you to see that every moment there is a counter-narrative. There is an attack. There is a fight over the definition of what America is. And black folks are always at the center, I would argue, of making America live up to its stated ideals. But I wanted people to see that struggle, that back and forth, because I did not want anybody to think, ah, the museum's up, Obama's president, we've made it.
1: Secretary Bunch's important work in this regard reveals that history is always fraught. Because, you know, we are fraught, too. It is our stories, after all.
3: I just say it's a doggone fight. You know, it's always been a fight. And that, in essence, Black folks have been at the center of the fight. There are times we've led that fight. But every fight that there's been with Black folks in, we do get hit. It's up for us as historians to one, make sure we realize we're not just talking to each other. Make sure we help people understand the value of the past and the lessons. This notion that history repeats itself. But in many ways, I am really struck with how the sort of lack of political will and the violence ends the first reconstruction. And if I've done anything with the museum with the Smithsonian is to say that the story of Black folks, Native folks, Latino folks, it's the story of us all. And if we don't understand that, then we really will never understand who we once were, not understand at all who we are today, but more importantly, not allow us to build a shared future.
1: It's not a linear story, not a straight line to triumph. One gets a sense of the fits and starts that characterize this fragile experiment. Here, America is not just an idea. It is an argument, it is a fight. Perhaps the issue, the story, isn't really about a more perfect union, but about imperfect people trying desperately to figure out how to live together and to make real the promises of American democracy. All too often, we have chosen to turn our backs on those promises. Over and over again, we have chosen safety in the lies we have told about men and women. And so many have suffered because of it. Not just those who bore the sting of the whip, but those who lost themselves in delivering the lash. James Baldwin comes to mind again. He says, quote, People who treat other people as less than human must not be surprised when the bread they have cast on the waters comes floating back to them, poisoned. This is our history and we must face it, pass through it, if we are to become a truly multiracial democracy on the other side.
3: What I think comes out for me out of Reconstruction is the sense of missed opportunity. What a possibility of what America could be. And every time I think about that missed opportunity, I say, how can we make up for it? But then January 6th made me worry that forget a missed opportunity, we've got a war on. What you really see is a desire to say enough's enough. And I'm worried that we're at that point where we used to say enough's enough. Now what you're hearing is people saying, let's push it back. Let's return to this image of a white America.
1: Fits and starts, one step forward, two steps backward. The reality is this, that every racial reckoning in the history of this country has involved or entailed betrayal. The sense that at every moment, when it feels as if a new America is about to be born, the umbilical cord of white supremacy has been wrapped around the baby's neck, choking the life out of it. We have to be better midwives if a new America is to be born. In 1966, when Langston Hughes handed his good friend Nina Simone a copy of his poem, Backlash Blues, he asked if she would be willing to set the song to music and perform it. She obliged. Performing the poem turned song publicly for the first time at Lincoln Center's Philharmonic Hall that November. It was officially released in October of 1967, and would go on to become one of the most famous songs from the civil rights movement.
0: When I try to find a job, to Get a little cash you going hand me is your two cent backlash.
1: Put plainly, this blues poem about white backlash provides a window into the soul of the nation. Backlash torments us still
3: what i feel very strongly about is that if we don't use this history to really illuminate those dark corners to say that this is a struggle it's a struggle that we have to engage in and that really this is less about black folks and more about the goals of a nation i worry that what we haven't done is engage enough people to understand That this is not a time to tread water. We've got to have people believe, believe that they can move an America in a different direction, rather than simply say, Oh my God, what's happening? What happened on January 6th? Rather,
1: what I want to see people say is, okay, the struggle continues. Freedom is not an end, it is a practice. We must fight continuously to be free maybe that can be the anchor to a different, to a better story.
3: As somebody once said, as long as there are people of color in the United States, there will always be a struggle.
1: Coming up next time on History Is Us, we turn our attention to the betrayal of the promise of the Second Reconstruction and how that moment shapes our current days. To paraphrase Mark Twain, history may not repeat but it damn sure rhymes.
0: What we've seen throughout American history is that periods of racial progress are oftentimes almost like clockwork followed by periods of great racist reaction.
1: We fight over history because it goes to talking about who we are as a people. And there's a certain way in which discussion of what did happen in the past sets the stage for what could happen in the future. History Is Us is a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham studio. It is executive produced by Chris Corcoran and John Meacham, narrated by me, Dr. Eddie S. Jr., and written by Shelby Sinclair and me, directed by Paige Heimson, production assistance by Terence Malengoth, editing, mixing, and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz, Production and creative support by Lloyd Lockridge, Chris Basil, David Weisbord, Nikki Kovic, and Ian Mott. Artwork is by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schiff. Research by Shelby Sinclair and additional assistance from Dion Worthy and Elio Leah. Thank you for listening to Chapter 3 of History Is Us a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals, and John Meacham Studio. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and follow it on your favorite listening platform so others can find and enjoy it as well.